Uh, guys, if you would, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be continuing this series, uh, Between Two Worlds, uh, is the idea here. And the, and the idea is, is this. We are told throughout Scripture that as Christ followers, we are citizens of his kingdom, right? And yet, we find ourselves here, Many of us as citizens of the United States or as citizens of another country, but we find ourselves kind of between these two worlds. And we're trying to figure out how do we live faithfully between those two worlds. All right, you're looking for Daniel chapter two. That's great. But I have to ask you guys a question. If I do this, do you know what I'm doing? Right? If I do this, you know what I'm doing? Now, how many of you guys played rock, paper, scissors, and you got bored? Because, you know, with rock, paper, scissors, there's never a clear winner. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you play it long enough, it all just kind of evens out. Because, yes, the rock beats the scissors, but then the paper covers the rock. And then the, the, the paper beats the rock, but then it gets cut by the scissors, and so on and so forth. And it's always this checks and balances and all of that stuff. And the question really becomes, well, who's in charge? Who's going to win? If we're going to balance this all out, so my friends and I, when I was younger, we came up with a solution. Some of you guys may have done the same thing. I remember it very clearly. I was riding the bus. I was probably in second or third grade, and my friend Travis and I were playing rock, paper, scissors. And we do this, and instead of doing this or this or this, Travis does this. And I'm like, what's that? You guys, I heard it. Somebody said it. What was it? dynamite. He's like, this beats all of them. And I'm like, well, that's not fair. He's like, it's the rules, man. I'm like, it's called rock, paper, scissors. It's not called rock, paper, scissors, dynamite. Well, this led to an, a war of escalation. By the time we were done, we had fighter jets, we had nuclear bombs, all with this goal of saying, well, which one is most powerful? Friends, as we look at Daniel chapter 2 this morning, that's what I want us to have in the back of our mind. Who or what has the most power? That's the question that I think we ought to be asking ourselves as we look at this chapter. It's an important question, not just for childhood games like rock, paper, scissors, and no offense, some of you are probably in like leagues or tournaments or something, and you're adults now, and so it's not a childhood game. I get it. Whatever. Anyways, nonetheless, this is an important question, not just for that, and not just for Daniel chapter two, but really to understand all of reality. See, when you get down to its most basic component, every culture is ultimately shaped by the answer that it gives to this question. Every family is ultimately shaped by the answer that is given to this question. And every individual life is ultimately going to be shaped by, you guessed it, the answer to this question. This is what has led to so much division throughout the history of humanity. is because when it comes down to it, we are not agreeing on this. Right? If we just think about different uh, realms, if you will, different, different areas of life, we see this pretty quickly. Like if you're thinking economically, you have some people who say, well, the most important or the most powerful is the market. And you have others who would say, no, 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 the most important component economically is the state. Now, there are terms that we could use to describe both of those answers, right? Right? You've got capitalism, you've got communism, right? And, and these two answers economically are ultimately a question of who has the power, right? Socially, is it the nation 
that ultimately holds the power or is it the individual who holds the power, right? And you see this division come in when different answers are given to that question politically. Does the right have the most power? Does the left have the most power? Or does it change every four years and this is the system we know is utter chaos, right? Whatever it is, you can see how this question of who has the power is going to determine a significant amount, if not everything ultimately, about that instant. What do we, as the people of God, think about this question? Now, I, I know the Sunday school answer, right? We talked Sunday school answers last week. We, we, we know the Sunday school answer, but I want us to understand when it gets down to rubber on the road, when it gets down to the nitty gritty, where do we stand on that question? This is the question that was facing Daniel in his day, right? And we pick this up in Daniel chapter two, and I just want to give a Brief bit of background here. Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has uh, conquered Jerusalem. He's taken Daniel and his friends off into exile. And you have Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. And we're getting their story. And in chapter one, we saw how they were faithful to their God in exile. In chapter two, we're going to see a little bit different situation. But I want to read here. Uh, if you would look at Daniel 2 verses 1 through 13. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him, and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream, and I am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, and the Aramaic begins here. This is, this is an interesting little note, an interesting note. Uh, there are three languages in your Bible right? Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew in the Old Testament, except for this chunk of Daniel running through from here till about chapter eight. Uh, you have this chunk that's in Aramaic. Uh, and so some of your Bibles may say they replied in Aramaic, or they may say the Aramaic starts here. That's what it's getting at. This is where the book of Daniel is not written in English. It's not written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic from this section. All right. May the king live forever. This is their reply to the king. Tell your servants the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. I think the king really wants to know this. But why is he asking them, tell me the dream? Why doesn't he just say, here's the dream, now you give me the interpretation? Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but the king is new in his position. He, he's only been in power now about two to three years. He's not been there long. These advisors are people that he's still trying out. And, and they could give him, anybody can interpret a dream. Anybody, if you tell them the dream, could tell you, oh, well, I think it means this, it could mean this, you know, this kind of stuff, that thing, the other thing. But he says, wait a second, I've got a great way to test this. I don't have to believe that their interpretation is right unless they can also tell me what the dream was. Then I know that the interpretation is not coming from them, it's actually coming in, in the Babylonian mindset. This is coming from the gods. This is truth coming from the gods. And if they can give me the dream and its interpretation, then I can trust the interpretation, even though I already know the dream. Well, this is a problem because for lack of a better way of putting it, they were used to making things up. They were used to their interpretation coming just, you know, willy nilly and who's gonna check them? They're the ones with the inside line to the gods. And so he says, well, you gotta tell me the dream. 
If you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, and great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. They answered a second time. May the king tell the dream to his servants and we'll make known the interpretation. <laughs> like this is not how this normally works. The king replied, now I know for certain you're trying to gain some times because you see my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know that you can give me its interpretation. They answered the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of a magician, medium, or Chaldean. In other words, king, I know you're new here. Maybe you don't know how things work. This is not how we do it. But he's having none of it. What the king is asking is so difficult that none can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Now, Daniel and his friends, we just got introduced to him in chapter one. And here in chapter two, it seems like the story is going to be a fairly short one. Because Daniel and his friends were part of this group of advisors. We shouldn't be thrown by the fact that they're referred to as magicians, mediums, enchanters, or whatever else your text might say. Uh, the idea is those who advise the king, right? And Daniel and his friends are kind of caught up in the midst of that. Now, what's going on is fundamentally a question of power. What's going on is fundamentally the king saying to these advisors, I have the power, do what I want, or I'm going to tear you limb from limb and your house is going to be a garbage dump, right? That's what's going on. He's claiming ultimate power. And they say what? Hold up, king. No, no, no. You can't, you can't demand this of us because we don't have that power. That's the kind of power that only belongs to the gods. Now, the funny thing is, these are the people who are supposed to speak for the gods. These are the ones that the king is depending on to be his conduit to the gods, and so they're saying the ultimate power is the gods. He's saying he's the ultimate power. There's a disagreement. But fundamentally, they don't know who's in charge. They don't know who's in charge. And this is the reality that we run into in our nation, in our families, within ourselves. When we're confused about who's in charge, who's got the power, the inevitable result is going to be strife and division. Well, hopefully it doesn't get to the point of, you know, tearing off arms, but it's the inevitable result is going to be division when we disagree about authority, about power. Now, that's understandable in the world. It's understandable in Babylon for Nebuchadnezzar and these advisors. It's understandable in our nation for us to have good, well-intentioned people coming to disagreements about who has the ultimate power and then having division as a result. It is absolutely incomprehensible that Christ followers would struggle in this area. It is utterly unbelievable that there would be any question about this. Why? Because it's really clear in scripture for those who are in Christ, who has the power. All right, now again, this is the Sunday school answer, but look at Matthew chapter 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. The resurrected Jesus stands before his disciples and he says, all right, everybody's got a question about who's in charge, who's got the power, who's got the authority. Jesus says, I do. And I don't have some of the authority. I, I, I don't just have authority 
Over the church, I have all the authority. All authority. Now, think about the word all. I like to think about the word all around Easter time and around Halloween. Because my kids bring candy into my house and I have to have a discussion with them about what the word all means, right? I talk to them about how I make all of the payments on the house. And therefore anything inside the house is all mine. Now they disagree with me every single time. It seems like we have this discussion. So then I teach them about taxation and different things like that. But, but the word all, if you just think about it for a second, what does it mean? It means all, right? This is not one that we have to have a PhD to understand what the word all means. And Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So when a Christ follower comes across a question like who has the power, the answer is easy. If we're thinking about the economy, guess what the answer is? Jesus. It's not the market, it's not the state, it's Jesus. We're not used to thinking in terms like this. When it comes to our politics, right? Who has the power, the right or the left? No, Jesus, right? Socially, who has the power, the state or the individual? It's Jesus. The rest of the Christian life is simply working out the implications of the fact that Jesus is in charge. Everything else we do, every other question we might ask, whether it's about our nation or about our family or about ourselves, every other question is simply a subset of the fact that Jesus has all the authority. Now what do I do? If Jesus has all the authority, what does he tell me I need to do in this situation, in that moment? If this happens in this sphere of influence, in this workplace, in this conversation, the question is answered. Who has the power? Jesus does. And the rest of it's just working out the details. Now, I want us to understand something though. Nebuchadnezzar thought he had power. And how does he decide to use his power? Do what I want or I'll kill you. Jesus has all the authority. He has all the authority. And how does he use his power? Go ahead, kill me. He gives himself up. The power of compulsion, as it is so often exercised in our society, in our families, in the world, fails in the face of the power of Jesus's compassion. We need to grasp this. Jesus's power was not something that he exercised for his own benefit. His power was something he exercised for our benefits. I love the statement earlier in Matthew. We looked at 28, but look at, look at Matthew chapter nine. Jesus continued preaching the good news of the kingdom. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them, for he saw that they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. This is the guy who literally created the cosmos. This is the one who is going to say, I'm in charge of everything. And yet when he views people, he views them with eyes of compassion. 
The nation may look at you or may look at a community and see it in purely economic terms, purely in political terms, or purely in social constructs, right? Ladelia, and Pam, I loved what you said, these are the forgotten people, right? Their city's forgotten them, their state barely pays attention, and yet right in the midst of it, there was a guy named Stalin, Vivenzuela, say that 10 times fast, who himself is not well-to-do, but he has the heart of Christ and he looks at these houses, these people, and he says, I think Jesus can do something here. And he doesn't just sit back and wait for Jesus to return and do something. No, he says, if, if I am Christ, then this is my responsibility. Church, when we understand who's in charge and when we then have the same compassion and the same approach to power that Jesus did, we begin to do things differently. If we're not doing things differently, perhaps we've missed a step somewhere. Let's continue in Daniel chapter two. Look at verse 14. So the decree went out, they're searching for Daniel and his friends to execute them. When Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, that, that word king's guard could really be aptly translated as executioner. So the dude that's coming to kill Daniel and his buddy, Daniel replies with tact and discretion. This is one of those moments where the biblical author just kind of states the obvious, right? You don't smart off to the guy coming to kill you. You reply with tact and discretion. He had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Arioch, the king's officer, why is this decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel. So Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Now, interestingly enough, what did the Chaldeans ask for? They asked for time. Well, give us time, king. Now you're trying to trick me. Daniel asked for time, and what does the king do? Okay. Daniel went to his house and told his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter and urging them to ask the God of heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. Daniel praised the God of heaven, the heavens and declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you've let me know what we asked of you for you have let us know the mystery. Therefore, Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. Now, it's interesting. Daniel's tact and discretion earn him some time and his response is not to form a committee. His response is not to begin drafting a pros and cons board to make the wisest decision that he can. What's his response? He goes to his friends who share his faith and he says, let's pray. Let's pray. Already we see that Daniel understands this question of power. We can't do this. Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, we can't do this. Only God is going to be able to reveal this. So let's pray and ask him for mercy to reveal this mystery. And he does, God does. And, and Daniel praises him. And then he goes and he says, tell the king, Hold off on the executions. 
because I can explain it to him. Not because Daniel could explain it to him, but because God had revealed to Daniel the truth. Daniel's power in this situation does not come from himself. It comes from God. And Daniel is simply embracing that power for the good, not just of himself and his friends, but also of all of the advisors to the king. This is what God does with his power. When his people humbly seek his power for their problems, God gives them a way to not just sustain themselves, not just bless themselves, but to sustain and bless the people around them as well. The problem comes in with the fact that we are continually tempted to a wrong view of power. We're continually tempted. I think it takes two primary forms. First off, we have a tendency to embrace whatever narrative of power is going on around us and ignore Jesus. So this would be like Daniel there in the midst of that kingdom. This would be like Daniel, instead of speaking with tact and discretion to the king, saying to him, now listen here, king, God has the power and you don't. So sit down and shut up and, you know, please put the sword away. That's a problem. Because that's what it was all we already tried. The magicians were yelling at the king. The king was yelling at the magicians. Daniel doesn't just jump in and start yelling. And yet so often what we do is we embrace the world's solutions. Well, I'll just be louder. Well, if they're gonna be that way about it, you gotta fight fire with fire, right? You've heard the saying, an eye for an eye makes the whole, whole world blind, right? That's the problem. When we embrace the culture around us and its approach to power and we ignore Jesus's compassionate power, we're contributing to the problem. We're not helping anything. Regardless of whether we got the right answer, we're still not helping. The other temptation is to ignore the culture, to ignore the nation that we find ourselves in and to kind of retreat, to embrace some spiritualized, impotent version of Jesus. Some Jesus who only cares about my soul going to heaven when I die, and I don't, it doesn't matter what I do in the meantime. I can ignore all of these problems because I get to go to heaven. Well, <laughs> Jesus got to go to heaven too, but he was willing to die along the way. See, that's the problem. The temptation is to retreat or to engage in the same way the culture engages. But there is a third way, and I think Daniel embodies it for us. That third way is to embrace God and his approach to power. To embrace God and his approach to power and to use that out of compassion to serve the nation we find ourselves in the midst of. Not to join in the squabbling, not to join in the fighting, not to join in the power politics and the games, but instead to say, Here's a third option. Here's a third way. And out of love to meet the needs that we find. Daniel continues, 24. So Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I'll give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and he said to him, I have found a man among the Gian exiles who can let the king know the interpretation. Now, Arioch clearly doesn't understand. I have found, well, kind of, except Daniel found you, but whatever. 
The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mysteries he asks about. Well, that's a funny way to start, Daniel, because the last guys that did that got a death sentence for saying basically the same thing. But Daniel's not done. He's not done. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came to you in your mind as you lay on your bed were these. Your majesty, while you were in your bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what, know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Listen to the humility dripping out of Daniel's response there. Do you hear that? He doesn't come saying, yeah, that's right, all those schlubs couldn't do it, but I can. No, he says, nobody can do this. But it's also not some Babylonian idols in heaven who have this power. No, this power belongs to God. Who has the power? It's not you, king. It's not them and their gods. It's the true God. It's Yahweh. He's got the power. He can reveal it to you. And he has. And it's out of mercy. And I'm telling you this not because I'm smarter than you, not because I'm better than you, but because he's had mercy on me. What did he pray for? He prayed for mercy. What did God grant? Mercy. What is Daniel seeking from the king? Mercy. When we abandon power exercised in the world's way, when we embrace compassion Christ's way, it's amazing what happens. It's amazing the hearing that we can gain when we stop yelling and start loving. Daniel proceeds to tell him, and I'm not gonna read all of this, but I would encourage you to do so if it's been a little while since you've done it. But he tells him the dream. He says, there's this big statue and it was made of all this different stuff. And there was a head of gold and a chest of silver and legs of iron and then feet of iron mixed with clay. And Daniel proceeds to tell him the interpretation. Your kingdom is the head of gold. And you're going to be succeeded by a kingdom that's inferior to yours. It's below yours. It's silver. And they're going to be succeeded by another kingdom. And it's iron. It's going to be a violent kingdom. And then they're going to be, but they're going to be succeeded as well by a partly strong, partly brittle kingdom. Now, I'm not going to get into all of who's what and which kingdom's being talked about here because the most important part of the dream and the interpretation is, but you, king, saw a stone not touched by human hands that came and struck the statue. And the statue crumbled to dust and blew away like the chaff from the wheat. But the stone didn't move. Instead, it grew into a mountain that filled the whole earth. This is the kingdom of God. Now, that's pretty inflammatory to go to the king and say, yeah, yeah, you're great and all. You've got, you've got the head of gold on the statue. But God is going to strike not just your kingdom down. He's going to strike every kingdom down. 
Every kingdom, all the power of this world will fail when it's brought into confrontation with the power of God's kingdom. That mountain's gonna grow, that mountain's gonna fill the whole earth and the kingdoms will be no more. They'll be like the junk left over and blown away. What Daniel is doing is he's talking about Jesus. This hand, this stone that no hand had touched, this kingdom that comes and changes things because it's not doing battle the way the kingdoms of the earth do. Friends, the problem for most of us is we have verbally assented to the fact that Jesus is Lord. We, we, we have cognitively grown aware of the fact that there's a verse in the Bible that says Jesus has authority, but we wonder why our lives aren't looking like we thought they would. We wonder why we're still struggling with the exact same things that our neighbors are struggling with. We wonder why nobody is coming to us wanting the hope of the gospel. We wonder why people are shutting us out of the public square. It's because we came to rely on the exact same methods that this statue represents. We've come to rely on power, a power of compulsion, a power of authority, a power of lording it over. And all the while, Jesus is there saying, no, that's not how my kingdom's gonna be. That's not how my kingdom's gonna be established. Instead, Jesus shows up and he gives us a different way of relating to the people around us. Instead of from compelling them to simply having compassion on them. Instead of demanding our way, serving them along the way. This is the, this is the fundamental issue. And if you are seeing in your life the same kind of things that the world is seeing. Division, anger, hatred, fear, despair, depression. It's worthwhile to ask, have I truly grasped what it means that Jesus has all the authority? Or am I still trying to claim it? Or am I trying to give that authority to some idol in my life, my comfort, my political party? Am I expecting somebody to solve the world's problems using the world's solutions that haven't worked for all of these centuries? Or am I saying, wait a second, what did Jesus actually say? There at the end of this chapter, we see that Nebuchadnezzar responds. He gets this word from Daniel, a word that has said, God's going to destroy your kingdom and all of the kingdoms that come after you. And what is Nebuchadnezzar's response? Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshiped Daniel, that's a problem, gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries since you were able to reveal this mystery. It may be that if we stand up in the midst of our culture and we embrace the way of Jesus and look at those around us with compassion, it may be that if we reject our nation's approach to power and instead say, we're gonna do what Jesus said 
As G.K. Chesterton said, it's not that uh, Christianity has been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. But if we do that, it may be that the culture will say, wow, I may not embrace your Jesus, but I really like you Christians. I'm I'm gonna respect you for taking this different approach. It may be that's the response. Maybe they wanna kill us. We've seen both in the history of God's people. But the measure is not the response of the people around us. The measure is our faithfulness to the king who says, all authority has been given to me. When he looked at the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field. Would you pray with me? Father, we live in a day, in an age, in a culture that seems as all others have before it and all others will after it, should you tarry, to be in desperate need of some good news. Father, would we look to the fields? Would you give us your compassion for the needs that we see? You proclaimed good news to the poor, release for the captives. Would we be motivated to the same? Jesus, would we see your authority take hold, not just on our Sunday mornings, but in our weeks, in our jobs, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our community, in our visions for our free time, in our desires for our life. Could we say, in truth and with rejoicing, humbly, Jesus, you are king. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.